All right, everyone. Well, welcome back and good evening to you. We're continuing on on this new series of Biblical Leadership. We were off last Sunday for Father's Day. We're excited to be back with the goal of providing instruction on what it means to be a leader in the context of the church. And we're starting off with some big picture topics, trying to lay the foundation for biblical leadership. You might expect a series of biblical leadership to jump straight to the, the, the key topics people want to learn, how to, how to teach, how to prepare a Bible study. But we must lay the foundation right first before we worry about the implementation of leadership in the church. And so we found this foundation begins with getting the mission right. We learned last time what is the mission of biblical leadership. It is to minister the gospel. To what end? Why do we minister the gospel? Your chance to talk. To what end? For salvation and sanctification. And kind of put together, as Paul said, we learned last week from Colossians, or last time from Colossians 1.28, to present every man complete in Christ. We proclaim him, Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man and woman complete in Christ. Our goal is not just to make converts, but to make disciples. And the mission of the church is to make disciples by ministering the gospel. And so if that's our mission, to see others in the church saved and sanctified, to made complete in Christ by the ministry of the gospel, then we had better truly appreciate the power of the gospel. So last time, we, we spent the whole lesson really firmly establishing, yet this is our mission, to minister the gospel for salvation, for sanctification. That's our mission. And this time, I want to do almost a tandem lesson focusing now on the gospel itself as the power source for this mission. Of course, they go together. We really want to appreciate the power of the gospel. It is the power of the biblical leader. Now, I know I'm really laboring this point, but you have to get it straight. Like I said, this is the foundation. And sometimes we get anxious. We want to jump to the, the hot topics and the fun topics, you might say, or whatever. But if you skip these foundational matters, your house will be weak and your leadership will be weak. And I, I don't want to see any more misguided, misled, misdirected leaders in the church. Now, here's the thing. If leaders in the church miss the mission of biblical leadership, then how quickly are they going to sacrifice the true power of leadership, which is the gospel and the word of God, for something else, for a gimmick? If the true mission is to make disciples, to present every man complete in Christ by ministering the word of God and, and the gospel, the gospel is going to retain center stage. The word of God is going to retain center stage. But what are some, if you can remember from last time, it's a couple of weeks ago now, what are some wrong missions of the church? How do some in various levels of church leadership become misguided? And, and what are some faulty missions within church leadership today? Yeah, selfish ambition, making a name for yourself. Feel good gospel to make people feel good, make people feel good about themselves. Numbers. Yeah, absolutely. The numbers game. Social goods. What do you mean by that? Okay, yeah. Yeah, like social gospel. We'll learn about that next week. James 1.27. You know, there, there's various faulty missions. You guys name some good ones. You have, of course, money, just to raise money. 
That's always been a, a wrong mission of the church. And look, religiosity and guilt are way more effective than the gospel at raising money. Or buildings and numbers, the whole corporation game, the mission of the church is just to continually expand and grow like a company. See how big can we get? And corporate tactics and strategies are way more effective than the gospel at building buildings. Maybe self-esteem. The mission is to make people feel good about themselves. And worldly wisdom and pop psychology are way more effective than the gospel at making people feel good about themselves in a worldly sense. Pride and prestige, if the mission is to just build the popularity of the preacher or to make a name for themselves as a church, well, you know, clever speech and humor are going to be more effective than the gospel at doing that. And so, look, are there not enough churches and church leaders who have seemed to miss the mission and therefore they've sacrificed the power of the gospel for something else? And the result of this is just churches filled with either unsaved or unsanctified people. All this goes to say, though, for us, we, we want to get it right. Last time we got right the mission, and today we want to reinforce that by solidifying the power in the mission, which is not us. It's not our clever words of wisdom. It's the gospel. It's God's word, and in particular, the, the truths of the gospel. And I don't want us to ever sacrifice or exchange the power of the gospel for something else. When you come to understand and appreciate that power, you, you're not going to trade it for something cheap or a gimmick or a program. In our backyard, we've got an oak tree pruning. Used to prune it with a pole saw, which is just a little saw on the end of a pole. And so you're, it's all manual labor. It, it's stressful on the neck and the arms. You can't do it for long. You can't get through big branches. It's just labor. And it's no fun. But then I upgraded to a pole chainsaw. <laughs> it's just a chainsaw on the end of a pole. And it's so much better. It cuts through them like butter. I can cut through pretty thick uh, limbs with it. And once you experience the power of a chainsaw, you don't go back to a pole saw. It's just it's night and day. And when you experience the power of the gospel to change lives, to see people actually made new and different, not just you know, casually reformed on the outside, but transformed, well, hopefully you don't go back. You don't trade that for anything else. Why would you? So I just want us to spend time exploring this evening. This is, yeah, it's another compendium less than the last time, but so be it. Further exploring the power of the gospel to do the work God has given us to do. And so we're going to study the power of the gospel for salvation and then also the power of the gospel for sanctification. And one of the goals of this series is to help our local church raise up leaders. And we need to make sure that they're true gospel ministers. If you see yourself as a leader, and we all should be seeing ourselves as disciplers, remember? Well, we need to be ministers of the gospel. So first, the power of the gospel for salvation. The power of the gospel for salvation. Now here at this church, we talk about this quite a bit. So I trust this is not going to be new or surprising to you. I certainly hope not, but we still want to go over it. I want us to first talk about the gospel message itself, because we're throwing that term around like quite the buzzword, but far be it from us for, uh, if we don't at least talk about it and make sure you understand what it means. The gospel refers to the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you that have been around for a while, you know I like to make a point that before you understand and appreciate the good news, you probably want to spend some time understanding and appreciating the bad news, which always comes first in Scripture. So, in, in one word, 
Give me some one-word answers. What is the bad news facing humanity in Scripture? Sin? Separation? Death. Death, I mean, those all work. Hell, judgment. But I'm going to go with the word death. Death is our problem, our, our main problem. It incorporates sin and separation and hell and judgment. Death is separation. We face a physical death because of sin, where our bodies will be separated from our spirits. We also face a spiritual death. It's already upon us, the separation of our, ourselves from God. And people inherently understand there's something wrong and broken with this world, and ultimately it's, it's death. We know that biblically death comes from sin. The wages of sin is death. Death refers to separation, as we talked about, and the first, the second death, these are our greatest problems, and that the spiritual separation we have will go on eternally. So that's a, that's a problem. Why can't God accept us into his presence in heaven? Holy. Yeah, we're not perfect, which is to say he, he is. It's holiness, this abject perfection of holiness and righteousness and justice. Exodus 34, 6, God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He can't overlook evil. He must deal with it. We're evil. He must deal with it. We're thoroughly sinful on the inside and the out. You know, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So because of our sins, we deserve a just judgment and separation from God. And I trust you know the answer well. We face death and judgment before holy God. What can we do ourselves to answer the problem? Ed, what can we do but on our own? Yeah, nothing. Thank you. It wasn't a trick question. We're, we're spiritually dead. We're like a corpse before God. We can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves spiritually alive. We can't reconcile, reconcile ourselves to God. We can't pay for our own sins. We can't earn the perfect righteousness we need to enter heaven. We're just thoroughly lost and condemned. So there's some bad news. And you keep studying, and it just piles up. You can look at more facets of this bad news before God because of our sinful condition. That's a good thing. The more you feel the weight of the bad news on you, on me, then the more you're going to appreciate the good news which comes next. And we know the good news centers on Christ, Jesus, that God sent his son Christ into the world to do something to answer our problem. Our problem is death. The Bible tells us who Christ is. He's the son of God and God the son at the same time. He's the savior, the Messiah, virgin born, free from sin, lived a sinless life of perfect righteousness. But then 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that's Paul's very brief summary of the gospel. And he says this, this is how he gets the, the, the true highlights. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. And Paul summarizes the basic facts and truths of the gospel as Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection. But why did he die on the cross? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? What was he doing on the cross? Joe, what were some things Jesus did? Why did he have to die on the cross? Yeah, he, he's taking our sin away. What else? There's so many facets of what he did on the cross. He paid for us. So we would call that substitute, substitute sacrifice. 
substitute payment in our place. Yeah, yeah, I've got that in my notes here. Good, good job, Mason. Yeah, yeah. He was a propitiation. In fact, I'll read it. First John four ten, and this is love, not that we love God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, Mason, you you spoke up. Can you tell us what propitiation means? <laughs> yeah, he, he got it, Joey. Don't worry. Yeah, He fully satisfied God's wrath due our sins. He merited our forgiveness. We were under a just penalty, a debt of sin, an infinite debt. And in his death, he paid that debt in our place. He bore God's wrath to do that and fully satisfied God's wrath that we can be forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5.21 also adds, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We looked at that verse last time. Jesus died to take on our sins, that our sin debt might be completely wiped away before God. And he also gives to us his perfect righteousness. So not only does he take away our full debt of sin, but he gives to us his perfect weight of righteousness. That's what we need to be accepted before God. This is what the Bible speaks of as justification, being forgiven of all our sin and made right and righteous before God. So in short, this is what Jesus did for us in his death on the cross. But he didn't just die on our behalf. He also rose on the third day. So why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? What's so what's the big deal about his resurrection? Proof he's God. That, that's an aspect of it. Yeah, proof he conquered death and that God accepted the sacrifice. All good, all, all correct answers. So the ultimate vindication and proof that he paid our sin debt in full. And there's many facets to his resurrection, but that's a main one. That if Jesus stayed in the grave, it would mean that our sins were not paid in full because he was still paying the penalty in the grave. The wages of sin is death. But in rising, he proved that the payment was in full. It, it truly is finished. And by his power conquering death, uh, he gives us the, the, the means of, of life ourselves, the first truth of the resurrection, we will follow in in like manner. He rose to display that his work on our behalf was complete. So Jesus died and rose again on our behalf to completely answer our problem of death. Not all are saved, though. He died, he rose. Not everyone's saved. So what, what must be done? What According to scripture, what must you do in a human perspective to receive the good news? Believe. Yeah. Again, not a trick question, guys. For, for what are we told to do? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Like John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You're called to repent and believe. And we know well God's sovereignty and salvation, but us as gospel ministers, we're, we, we issue the call. Repent, believe. That's what we must do to be saved. Now, this is basic. There's more. The well of the gospel goes much deeper than this, but you get, you get the gist of it. This is the, the basic gospel message, the good news of Christ. So that's the message. At the same time, what's so special about this message? Why is it that this little message, this little story of, of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, 
Why is this the power of God for salvation? Like Paul says in Romans 1.16. Like, what's so special about that message? Why is that the power for salvation? Yeah, it, it, because of God. Because he, he said so. Because he determined it to be so. The simple fact is, the gospel message is not a magical incantation. You, you say it to someone and, and they just get saved or something magical happens. The fact is that God has chosen to put his saving power behind this message. He has chosen to use the good news of Jesus Christ preached to draw sinners to himself and to save people. You know, not long ago during our Doctrines of Grace series, we learned about the necessity of the external call. For someone to be saved, there must be an internal call. God must bring them to life on the inside. But just according to his will and his plan, he determines to use the external call, the ministry of the gospel, as the means by which he issues his internal call. He didn't have to. He just, that's how he chose to do it. You take it up with him. But Romans 10, 13, 14 says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? So if you are to be a faithful leader, faithful discipler at any level in the church, or just a faithful Christian, what must you do when it comes to salvation of others? Share the gospel. That's it. Share the gospel. As my old pastor used to say, drop the bomb. No one's getting saved on a human perspective until you do it, so let it out. This is the ordained means God has chosen for people to be saved, so you must speak. Let it out. In any church or group where the gospel is not preached or ministered, people will come. They'll be moralized. They'll be churched. They can even experience some reform through social pressure in their lives, but they won't be saved. And so that it's good for nothing. If the mission is merely to entertain the masses, then that's fine. Just keep doing that. But if the mission is to make disciples, and this begins with salvation, well, then you better stick to ministering the gospel. Whether it's you've got five minutes with someone or, or five years with someone, just minister the gospel to them. Now, you understand this, all this being said, when a person is faithful to do this, to minister the gospel to people around them, the world around them, what are some of the reactions they get back? Persecution, disbelief, not everyone believes, rejection, ridicule, scorn, rebuke, maybe even violence in the future, just negative reactions. And so what can happen to a minister of the gospel when over time it's like no one seems to believe and, and he's always treated terribly, what can happen to that person? Discouragement, right? Discouragement. And so you put together the fear of man plus discouragement leads a lot of churches and church leaders to give up on the gospel. You know, it doesn't work. It's too hard. It's too much opposition. It is not popular. It sends people away. Just people don't like to hear about, you know, that, that bad news stuff, especially. There's just a list of excuses forms. And so they start to substitute for the gospel other things that they don't take so much heat that are a little more friendly and popular, like gimmicks and programs and clever speech and whatever, all to disastrous results. And don't get me wrong, they may skyrocket in popularity and prestige and 
new buildings and book deals. But if the gospel is absent, they're building a kingdom. It's just not God's kingdom. They're just building their own kingdom. Instead, for you and me, just be faithful. We're not in control of the results. No, don't even worry about the results. That's, that's God's job. He'll take care of it at, per his sovereign will. Don't worry about the results. Just be faithful. And whatever reaction you get, however people respond, just be faithful and, and truly believe in the power of the gospel. Don't give up on it as the power. It's the only hope people have. It's not hard to pressure someone to change their behavior through various means of society and whatnot, but they're still lost. Only the gospel can transform them. We're not looking at basic character reform. People need transformation. It's supernatural, like you're dead, now you're alive. It's only God has that power, but he promises to do it through the gospel. So nothing else can make them new, give them new birth, give them salvation. So don't sacrifice the gospel, don't water it down, don't change it, don't substitute it, don't give up on the gospel. Real quick here, 1 Corinthians 1, just flip over there. I think we have just enough time for this. We've got a lot to cover. So 1 Corinthians 1, a special passage. There's many like it. Really the whole book of 2 Timothy is kind of like it. Paul talking about the gospel, how he's not ashamed of that gospel, he says often. But I want you to see this passage, 1 Corinthians 1. Let's start in verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, quick side note just popped in my mind. A couple of Easter's ago, I, I posted on like Instagram and Facebook a little, you know, Easter message, resurrection. And some random person I don't know, like, commented a pretty, you know, slanderous, like, oh yeah, who believes that? Or it's it pretty negative. It's just a slander against the, the news of uh, the resurrection. And I just responded back with this verse. What more can you say? The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. We've experienced that power. They don't know it, but we know it. And we're going to hold on to it. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. People have always hated the gospel, and they always will until Christ returns, because in, in their lostness, they hate God, and so did we once. But don't be ashamed. The message is foolishness to the world uh, of a, a Savior who died and rose again, and all that goes with it. It's just to, to the Jews, to the Gentiles, it's foolishness, it's dumb. But the foolishness of God is infinitely wiser and greater than the wisdom of men. Believe that and hold on to it. And don't substitute Christ and him crucified. The simplicity of Christ and him crucified. 
Why would you trade that for clever speech or words of worldly wisdom? Just stick to Christ and him crucified and you'll be a faithful gospel minister. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, real quick as well. He says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Notice Paul did not base his witnessing on the power of his own speech. And how clever could he be? How catchy could he be? How could he just be an ear pleaser, a man pleaser? There's a lot of that today. You see it online as well, little clips of popular preachers. And it's just so, they're trying so hard to be clever, but not really talking about the Bible. Oprah could say that. You know, anyone could say that. It lacks power because it lacks gospel, truth, scripture. But again, he, he showed up and just not in cleverness of speech. He determined nothing except Christ and him crucified. And it's not always going to be popular. Plenty turned away and even turned on him. But you know what? If you, if you make your message just the pure gospel, when people believe, at least you know they're believing the right thing. That when people do come, at least you know, like, oh, they, they must be the real deal. Because I didn't pull punches. I didn't soften it. I didn't take out the bad news. Like, I gave them the real deal. If they're signing up for that, it's only one explanation. God must have done something in their heart. This must be real fruit. Not just an attendee. Not just a congregant. This person might be an actual disciple. And that's the power of the gospel. And so every single Christian should be able to say with Paul here in like Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You can only say that if you've been saved. If you've experienced the power of the gospel in your life. And you have to meditate on it, learn it, dive deeper in it, and believe it. Everyone needs to know this, but especially any leader in the church, anyone who aspires to leadership in the church, you have to be able to say this and live it out, right? You're not ashamed of the gospel. You believe in its power and you're content with the message of Christ and him crucified. Otherwise, you're not going to be a a faithful leader. You're not going to be a biblical leader. For our mission, uh, you can't get it done without the gospel. So don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't sacrifice it. Don't cheapen it. Don't substitute it. Instead, preach it, share it, guard it, minister it. This is God's power for the mission of the church, which starts with salvation, right? Part one of our mission is salvation to make disciples. Well, this is the power of the gospel for salvation. So the gospel is the power of, of the leader. So wield it. Now, secondly, the gospel is also the power for sanctification. And so secondly here, the power of the gospel for sanctification. The power of the gospel for sanctification. And the leader in the church knows or should know that the truth of the gospel and the powerful message of Christ and him crucified, it's essential not just for salvation, but also for sanctification. 
In other words, it's not like you just use and minister these truths of the gospel until someone gets saved, and then once they're a Christian now, like, let's move on to some other things. No, the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they continue to be our fuel for sanctification or becoming more like Christ. Remember, that's a main aspect of our mission as well, to present every person complete in Christ, to make disciples of Christ. And you need to understand how essential the gospel is to that. Not just getting them in the door. We talked about that. You believe that. I think you know that. The gospel is the means for their salvation. But do you know, do you really appreciate how the gospel, that the same truths of the gospel are just as essential for their spiritual growth, for their growth in Christ-likeness? Well, let's talk about that. The power of the gospel for sanctification. There are many ways I could show this to you, but I decided maybe that the simplest and best way is just to use the epistle of Ephesians to make this point. So turn to Ephesians. You can go to Ephesians 4. Last time I told you to read Ephesians if you wanted to kind of be more familiar with this. Ephesians, you can start in chapter 4. Now we can make this point from almost any New Testament epistle. But Ephesians, just so clear and simple and straightforward when it comes to its structure. I trust a lot of you know this. We've, we've talked about this a bunch. So, and you guys know a thing or two. So who knows the basic twofold outline to Ephesians? Well, first, where the, what's the chapter divisions? There's six chapters total. One to three, four to six. There you go. And how would you characterize chapters one through three? Orthodoxy. Any others? <laughs> what's it about? First three chapters. It's all about what? Salvation. What's that, Mark? Predestination. Predestination, yeah, contributing to and a facet of our salvation. What God has done for us. It's all the truths of what God has done for us in Christ. And then Ephesians 4 through 6, what's that all about? Practice, living it out. Orthopraxy is the less known word that is the opposite of orthodoxy for living it out. So you have... Commonly, you know, one through three, four through six, calling and conduct, doctrine and discipline, position and practice. This list goes on, you know, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, who you are in Christ, how to live in Christ. And the one I want you to, to know is indicative and then imperative, indicative and then imperative. Any, anyone knows a little grammar, can you help us out? What does an indicative verb signify? What's an indicative Reason why, statement of fact. Oliver, Oliver got it. He, he went through seminary, so he, you better get that right. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> it's a statement of fact. It's as simple as that. Just, and you keep it as simple as that. Statement of fact. That's an indicative verb. They're all throughout Scripture. Statement of fact. And what's an imperative? Command. That one, we know that one a little bit better, and that's, we get that command. Okay, it's a call to action. Statement of fact, indicative, command, imperative, call to action. Okay, you get that. Scripture is filled with plenty of indicatives, lots of statements of fact, and also plenty of imperatives, calls to action. But you need to understand with the New Testament epistles especially, which were written to govern Christian living under the New Covenant, there's a very clear pattern. We often call the indicative imperative distinction. It sounds fancy, but just, you know, the words now, the indicative imperative distinction. 
It simply means it's an observation that in just about every New Testament epistle, they're front-loaded with indicatives. The indicatives come first. All these statements of fact come first. And then, only after a bunch of indicatives, you, get, you finally start getting these imperatives. Now, here's what to do. Like the book of Hebrews, first 12 chapters, all indicative, pretty much. And then the last chapter is where he unloads imperatives. And so many books are like this. The point is, what the, the pattern is showing is that the biblical authors felt the need to first and foremost teach the truth, show their people, remind their people the truths of God and the gospel, and only then and only thereafter call them to action, to live in light of the truth. It's so counterintuitive to how we are. Like if if you're trying to help someone with a problem in their life or overcome some sin or whatever, what do we usually do first? We just tell them what to do. We give them a list of things to do, like you need to do this and stop doing that and try this and do that. We immediately jump to the imperatives and say, just do this and stop doing that and your problems will go away. We, we jump to the imperatives. But the authors of the New Testament, they were likewise trying to help their Christian audiences change and grow and be more like Christ. But they did not immediately jump to the imperatives and start barking orders at them. First and foremost, they spent lots of time just filling their minds with the truth, reminding them, teaching them the truth of what? God and the gospel and and all that. And then and only then did they give them the commands for right living. Now, there are commands. There's a certain way to live this out, but the truth comes first. The gospel comes first. That's because the authors of the New Testament understood that the truths of God's word, especially the gospel, it's the fuel that the Holy Spirit uses to grow us, to change us, and to cause us to bear fruit. We are called to participate in our sanctification, but we don't sanctify ourselves. The Spirit, we we bear the fruit of the Spirit, and it's the truth. In particular, or especially, the high octane is the truths of the gospel, and that fuels the Spirit within us, so to speak, to change us from within. Meaningful sanctification. And so, they did not forsake the gospel, but they continually reminded believers of the power of the gospel to sanctify them. And so we can go to Ephesians as a classic textbook example of this indicative imperative distinction. Hopefully this will drill the point in your mind that as biblical leaders, part of your mission, help others grow in Christ's image, right? We are trying to help people grow, be sanctified, help them with their problems, well, you know what? The truths of the gospel are just as essential for that. The don't sacrifice the gospel for ministry, all ministry. It's the power for all ministry. Let's see this in Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3 is your calling. Chapters 4 through 6 is your conduct. I don't have the exact numbers, but it's from some old seminary notes. Chapters 1 through 3, I believe there's so in the first three chapters, I think there's like over a hundred indicatives, statements of fact. And I think there's just one imperative, like in passing. That's it. But then the second half, there's over 70 imperatives. It's like, it's a clear two-parter. Like he front loads the thing with tons of truth, all statements of fact. And then the second half is just pretty much, I mean, there's still lots of truth statements, but he unloads the commands. 
chapters 1 through 3 is all about what God has done for us in Christ and who we are in Christ. And then 4 through 6 is, well, how we are to live in light of what God has done for us in Christ and who we are in Christ. And the hinge verse is, between these two segments, 1 through 3, 4 through 6, chapter 4, verse 1. So turn there if you're not already, chapter 4. Makes sense, right? That's why it's a textbook example. It's like so perfectly organized. One through three, four through six, the hinge right in the middle. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. One through three, this is the calling. He just spent three chapters on the calling. Here's your calling. Now, therefore, in light of that calling, chapters four through six, He's going to unload our conduct. Here's how to walk or live in light of that calling. What comes first? The calling. All the truth about your calling. And that fuels and motivates and enables what? The conduct. You can't just jump to the conduct. You can, but you're, you're missing the point. You start with the calling, the truth. Another quick example of this imperative or indicative imperative distinction He brings it up again in one verse, chapter 5, verse 8. Look there real quick. Chapter 5, verse 8. He says, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. What's he start with? Indicative. Here's who you are. You used to be darkness. Now you're light. So what should you do? Walk as children of light. And you get that throughout. Now, let's do a quick high-level survey of Ephesians 1 through 3. Just to drill home, what, what type of truths is Paul giving them in the first three chapters to, to build them up, to feed them? What's the meal first before all the commands come? Ephesians 1. Top of your head, anyone know the gist? What's Ephesians 1 kind of about? Christ's salvation. Predestination. John, I know you know this. Oh, Seal. There you go. John, Ephesians 1, you remember? The, 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 <laughs> you said, well, you, I know you know because you said it just a few days ago, just the triune work of God in, our, in the sovereignty and our salvation, Father, Son, and Spirit coming together. And that's what you get in, in verses 3 through 14, the triune work of salvation, how God... Father, Son, and Spirit, the three members of the Trinity, how he blessed us, he chose us, he made us holy, he predestined us, he adopted us according to his will, he sealed us with the Spirit, all to his glory. It's like he did this for us, he did this to us. The list goes on. It's a whirlwind of God's sovereignty and salvation. In the rest of the chapter, Paul offers his prayer for the Ephesians. In fact, look at 18 through 20. We focus so much on 3 through 14, and it is worth the time, but look at this prayer. What does he pray for them in the end of the chapter? 118, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what? What is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. What's the whole focus of his prayer? That they would better know the hope of their calling and the greatness of God's power. He doesn't just pray that, you know, for their backache or that their problems would go away or, you know, they would love people more. Not to say he wouldn't pray those things, but first and foremost, he prays just that they would better know and appreciate that the hope of their calling, that the power of God in them, what Christ has done for them, just that they would know this in their hearts because that's the key to their growth. Do you get that? And is that how you pray for others? For those who are leaders or aspiring leaders in the church, do you pray for others? That the top of your prayer list for someone who's struggling, that needs to change something in their life, for example, that they first and foremost would just know God and the gospel and the riches of the truth and what Christ has done for them, the hope of their calling. Make that your new top prayer request for people. Now in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, you get another very well-known passage. It's another master class in the gospel. Right? It's a classic passage, right? 1 through 10. Maybe the greatest short passage in scripture, summarizing all the bad news and then the good news of what salvation by grace through faith. You notice chapter 2, verse 2, that formerly we lived in the lust of the flesh. We, we walked in, or I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 2, we formerly walked according to the course of this world. We were slaves of sin, slaves of Satan, and enslaved, hopeless. But you know what God has done for you in Christ right now, verse 5, and 4 and 5. He, he made you alive. He raised you up. He seated you with Christ. The spiritual resurrection. All indicatives. These are present realities. This is what he has already done for you. In the second half of chapter 2, Paul goes on to explain further the effects of the gospel. Not only did Jesus, through his work, reconcile us to God vertically, but he also reconciled us to one another horizontally. He shows in specific how Christ reconciled us all together in one new man, in particular Jews and Gentiles, once enemies now reconciled by the same power of the gospel. This is good news for us who are Gentiles, which is, I think, probably most of us today. In chapter 2, verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's an indicative. It's what's what happened to you. If you're in Christ, you've been brought near. You're not far away anymore. You're, you're near. In chapter 2, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household especially encouraging for us Gentiles. That's another indicative. That's who you are in Christ. You're, you're now in the house. You're, you're a child of God. You're a member of his household. That is who you are in Christ. And then lastly, in chapter 3, Paul continues to unfold the mystery of Christ and the implications of the gospel for Gentiles. In fact, look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 3. He says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Again, that's all indicatives, more good news for us Gentiles. In verse 7, he says, speaking of the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to 
the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. And Paul was a minister of this gospel. That's what he's doing in Ephesians. He's ministering this gospel. In verse 8, he says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, what? The unfathomable riches of Christ. That's all he's doing. That's all he did. That's all we need to do. Just preach, minister, share the riches of Christ and all that contains. That's Ephesians 1 through 3. He's just ministering the riches and the mystery of Christ. Then he finishes the chapter with another prayer for the Ephesians. And just notice how gospel centered and Christ centered this prayer is. Verse 14. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every name and or every family in heaven on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. It's his focus. You would have power in the inner man. Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. We need this. How do we pray for one another to grow? I mean, it's not wrong to do so. It's just, you know, simplistic. We start somewhere like, Lord, just help my brother to, you know, love his wife more. We just, we pray the imperatives. We pray like, just help him do this thing more. You know what Paul is praying? Just, I pray, Lord, that, that Christ would just dwell in your hearts more through faith. That, that he would abide in your hearts. That he would strengthen you with power through his spirit in the inner man. Pray that you would just better comprehend the love of Christ. The, 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 the immeasurable love of Christ for you. That's his prayer. And if that prayer is answered and you come to that power and knowledge in the inner man, you're going to love your wife more. You're going to do that thing more. You're going to fight that sin better. You get the point? This is the power of the gospel for sanctification, for believers. We already believe the gospel, but it's still these, the riches of Christ. It's still the power the Spirit uses to conform us to Christ's image. Now, so far, Paul, he's not commanded the Ephesians to do anything, really. He's just been writing to them, telling them and reminding them of the truth of God mostly related to what God has done for them in Christ and who they are now in Christ. This is their spiritual identity. This is their calling. And so, again, you get to chapter 4, verse 1, the hinge. Therefore. It's a big therefore now, isn't it? Therefore, in light of all of that, he implores them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Now you're, you're a child of God now. You're a joint heir. You've been brought near. You're in the household. You've been saved. You've been, you know, made alive, raised up, seated in the heavenly places. The list goes on. You've been sent, you know, predestined and adopted. Because of that, now walk in a manner according. Live it out. Remember chapter 2, verse 2, he said, we used to walk according to the course of the world. We used to walk in the lust of the flesh. We used to walk under the dominion of Satan. But now 
In the second half, he calls us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And he picks up on this word for walk in the last three chapters, four through six. It's, it's further suborganized into five sections by the word walk. And so five times he will use this word walk to tell us how to walk. Chapter four, verse one, walk in a worthy manner. Chapter four, verse 17, walk no longer as the Gentiles in darkness. Chapter five, verse two, walk in love. Chapter five, verse eight, walk in light. Chapter five, verse 15, walk in wisdom. If I went too fast for your notes, you can ask me later. But this is what our walk should look like in Christ. And we had just a little bit of time left. Let's hit some highlights now in, in the second half of Ephesians 4 through 6. As he, he tells us now what the walk looks like. In chapter 4, it begins with the essence of our unity, verses 2 through 6. In 11 through 16, he mentions the giving of gifts and leaders to the church. And if you study that passage, you'll notice how God gives pastors and teachers to the church to equip the saints for the work of service and to spiritual maturity. But as you study the passage, we don't have time for it right now, but you learn that the primary means for these pastors and teachers to, to build up, for people to be built up into the image of Christ, is what? It's the knowledge of the Son of God, verse 13. It's speaking the truth in love. It's not being carried away by false doctrine. It all revolves around the truth. The leaders in the church, they're just ministers of the truth. That's how people grow. That's how we grow into Christ's image. He gets down to verses 17 through 19 and tells us to no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, Notice the emphasis on the darkness of their minds and understanding. They're, they're ignorant, they're hardened, they're blind to the glory of God. And that gives rise to their ungodly behavior. But it, it should be the exact opposite for us. Verse 20, you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. Look at verse 22. These are big verses. He says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. These verses actually are perfect summaries of why the indicatives come before the imperatives. You can't just jump to the imperatives. To help this make sense for you, you have to remember, we've been studying this a lot in James and whatnot, but how we grow in Christ. How do we grow? It's not by our own effort and power. We grow and are empowered by the Spirit within us. The Spirit grows us. The Spirit bears fruit within us. We are empowered by the Spirit. And so we grow by following the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit. Then we will carry out the Spirit's desires and grow. Okay, so how are we led and controlled by the Spirit? Well, when we renew our minds with the truth, verse 23, when we're renewed in the Spirit of our minds, 
when the mind of Christ in scripture fills our minds, replaces our thoughts, when the knowledge of his will permeates us, then we will be controlled by the spirit and carry out God's will. And so again, this is why Paul just front loaded Ephesians. Here's the mind of Christ. Here's the word of truth. Fill your mind with this. Let your mind be renewed by this. The spirit will feed off of this, so to speak, and you'll bear fruit. Here's the water. Here's the fertilizer for the tree. You give this to the tree, you feed it, you'll bear fruit. This is what we, we need to do as our minds are filled with the knowledge of the gospel and our calling. And as we renew our minds, that's our job. That's how we participate to renew our minds. So the spirit works to conform our conduct to our calling. That's how we grow. And that's why the gospel is still essential for sanctification. It's nothing new. Like we know all this stuff. We know, yeah, he died, he rose. Okay, we know all that. But you're missing the, 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 the point as I've said before, it's not just head knowledge. These doctrines are also heart knowledge. Head knowledge, I've learned it once. Okay, I don't, I don't need to learn it again. But heart knowledge, we need every day. That's, the, to be kind of corny, it's the food for the soul, right? We need that daily to feed us, to encourage us, and to, to grow us. That's why it is this way. Now, in the rest of the chapter, he fires off now rapid commands. He's put off, put ons. This is what it looks like, how to live it out. Chapter 5, he gets into more of how to walk, you know, walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. At the end of the chapter, he gets into special application for the household, husbands, wives, children, so on. But notice again now, hopefully this makes sense to you now, we're familiar with the, the commands for husbands and wives, right? Verse 22, chapter 5, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. These are imperatives for wives and husbands. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Why should they do that? Well, he explains with some indicatives because, well, Christ is the head of the church and he's made the husband head of his wife. So because of that gospel truth, you should submit to your husbands. He uses an indicative to explain the imperative of why God calls wives to be subject to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives. Why should you do that? It's an imperative. You need to. Why should you do it? Well, he uses some more indicatives. We should remember, you know, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her sacrificially. That's why you love your wives sacrificially. He uses the gospel pattern, truths, the gospel to help sanctify these husbands that they would love their wives. The indicatives justify, empower embolden the imperatives. And again, we don't, we don't have time for this to really get into right now. This is just ministry, but this is where this you know, gospel ministry to believers gets practical. Now, hey, let's say you're a biblical leader and you're trying to help a man love his wife more, just do a better job of loving his wife. So how would you help him do that? How would you help him grow? How would you admonish him or exhort him or help him? I'll tell you, tactic one is, is like Nike counsel. You'd say, like, just do it. Just, just, you know, tie a string around your finger. Just, just do a better job. Just kind of, you just need a reminders and just, you just need to try harder. And it's really just, it, it, the fault is him for not trying hard enough. And so just give it your, your good college try and just do better. 
And it's really just fleshing it out. It's the power of the flesh. It's not how we grow and carry out the will of God. Rather, the other tactic would be to, to take this man through Scripture and to, to remind him, to instruct him, to show him the truth of how, remember, Jesus loved us. He died for us. He sacrificed himself to save us. He gave himself up for us. And this is why God calls us to love our wives and, and how he calls us to love our wives. And you'd spend time just ministering the truth to this person. And see, what's special about that? As you do something like that, something supernatural happens. In the heart of a true believer, so if you're dealing with a true believer, the truth brings conviction. And the Spirit feeds off of that to produce change. And so that, that man is going to go away wanting to love his wife more because he, he's reminded of what Christ did for him and he loves Christ and the love of Christ is going to compel him and control him to love his wife more. This is renewing the mind in action. The truth of the gospel strengthens his desires to love his wife because he wants to honor the Lord. This is, this is the right way. Make sense? Now, just to finish up, we'll be a little over time, but you'll survive. Chapter 6, you know, he finishes up with some household application. And then verses 10 through 17, you get that famous armor of God passage. This was interesting after telling us to walk five times, you know, walk in light, walk in love, walk in wisdom. You get to the end of chapter 6, it's no longer about walking. He switches it up and it's all about standing. And three times he tells us, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. No more walking, now standing. When? When we're up against spiritual warfare. You remember, we used to walk in the ways of the devil. We used to follow him. Now we don't. And so when we come up against the schemes of the devil, no more walking. We're, we're to stand firm. How do we do that? He says, by bearing this armor of God. We don't have time to go through the passage, but as you study this yourselves and look at the end of Ephesians 6, you realize what is the armor? It's a metaphor, but well, what's he actually talking about it? He explains with words like truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the spirit, and the word of God. And so I contend that Paul envisions this armor of God holistically as simply the truths of the gospel. That's the armor of God. It's just the truths of the gospel. And as you fill your mind and guard your mind with the truths of the gospel, no scheme of the devil can take you down. Why is that? How does the devil operate? With deception. His is a truth war. He takes people down with lies. But if you're equipped with the armor, which is all about the truth, well, he, he can't touch you. He can't take you down. You're just too guarded by the truth and no lie can deceive you. And that's how he takes people down. And so once again, even the armor of God, the spiritual warfare, what does it tie into? The gospel. You have a believer, you're helping, struggling with temptation. They keep falling. What do they need? They need the armor. What's the armor? It's just, it's the truth. They need it to be filling their mind and guarding them so that no deception can take them away. See how it all comes back to the truth, to the gospel, to God's word. Now he finishes up with another prayer. This time he solicits prayer. We'll end with this. Read verse 18 of chapter 6. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. Now we're being told to pray. And he says, and with this in view, 
be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Then he says, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains and that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. First, I would ask, do you pray this for your leaders? Me, your elders, anyone in your life, in a leadership capacity? Is, is this your prayer? Can you please add that to your prayer list? Pray for your leaders. And for all of us, we need this to proclaim boldly the gospel. Whatever level of leadership you are, you're all called to be disciplers, to be like Paul here and to proclaim boldly the gospel, no matter the response, no matter the reaction, to be not ashamed of it, but to just let it out. For believers and for unbelievers, it's the power of God for salvation. And so we need to minister the gospel for our mission. And hopefully you better understand this now. See the big picture. As leaders in the church, you're trying to help people grow in Christ's image, overcome sin, glorify God through obedience. But as we learned even this morning, true obedience starts in the heart. We are trying to reach people's hearts. That's, that's the battleground, the heart level. And there, there's only one effective tool to minister to the heart. We can try and restrict behavior with gimmicks, but if we want true change where someone's behavior changes because their heart changes, we only have one tool for that. It's the Word of God, and in, in particular, the gospel. And so don't sacrifice the power of the gospel for anything else. Believe in the power of the gospel for salvation and even for sanctification. Get that one straight and, and God will use you mightily by his grace, to his glory, but for your blessing, he'll use you in other people's lives because you're using the, the power tool that can actually change them, save them and then change them to his glory. This is the power of biblical leadership. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the word of truth this evening. And as we, we hear it again, we've heard it before. And at this church, we've, we've heard it a million times. But we make no apology for that, Lord, because this is your means for changing us, for teaching us, for instructing us, and then for continually conforming us to Christ's image. You've placed your power in the word. You created everything with the word. Your son Christ came as the incarnate word. It's not going to be a surprise to us, Lord, that you're going to keep using your word to get your will done, be it salvation and sanctification. And so I pray for us as we lead your people or aspire to lead others around us in the mission of the church to make disciples, to present every person complete in Christ. I pray we'd never forget your word or sacrifice your word for some gimmick because it's more popular or easier or it comes with less persecution. Lord, convict us to simply be faithful men and women of God who just minister the truth to the hearts of those around us that they would be saved and sanctified. In this, you will be glorified. We will be blessed. Others will be impacted and it all comes from your power source. So may we hold it near and dear to our hearts. Learn it, live it out ourselves, and minister it, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.